Welcome to That'll Preach. I'm Brian. I'm here with a very special guest. We have Dr. Joe Minich with us. He's a teacher at Davenant Hall. He teaches in a program that you should check out. Davenant Hall, they provide classes. Basically, it's theological training for everyone. Really qualified teachers, people helping uh, lay people understand church history, theology, philosophy, all that good stuff. If you want to check that out, look up Davenant Hall, part of the Davenant Institute. And uh, he is also here as an author. He has written a really, really uh, powerful book called Enduring Divine Absence, The Challenge of Modern Atheism, which is a really nice subtitle. But first, uh, welcome to the to the podcast, Joe. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Initially, when I looked at the book, I'm like, oh, this is going to be sort of like an apologetic work of the proofs, the philosophical proofs of God's existence and different kinds of things. And when I read it, I realized it's actually got a different angle. There are two illustrations or or two examples that you use in the book that I think really set the stage. And I'd love to hear you fleshed out why those two resonated with you because they resonated with me. The first one was you you talk about a scene from the movie The Grey with Mm. Liam Neeson. And, you know, he's out in the the woods and he's I haven't seen the movie, so but. You know, it's okay that it was ruined yeah. for me because it's it's, yeah. it's a great moment. Statute you, of limitations. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you, you had to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like Snape killed Dumbledore. It's, yeah, it's we all delayed. know this. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. <laughs> but there's a moment at the end of the film where he's sort of uh, he's he's at, at a life of tragedy, and then he faces off this pack of wolves, and I guess he cries out to the sky, and he's screaming these kind of obscenities, asking you know like this last ditch effort for some higher power to intervene right and nothing happens and he says something effective i'll do it myself and yes y- you you mentioned the the chill of that feeling i think we can all relate to when in a moment of darkness we cry out and we're met with as you put it the silent sky yeah <laughs> the second one was it was a book about lilies oh, the beauty of the lilies the by beauty John of the lilies there yeah. you go there you go and uh you mentioned how one of the main characters is a pastor and he doesn't say that he stopped believing, but that faith had left him. But those two moments I noticed in myself, I was like, ooh, I get that. I get that. I, I, I sense that temptation. And uh, yeah. so I want to hear from you. What, why did you start off with those two images? And, and how did that yeah. influence what you were trying to tackle with this book? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, 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 a probably a th- think of them in reverse. I'm going to write myself a note here real quick. Uh, uh, but starting with that, that latter example, Clarence Wilmot is the the name of the minister in, in Updike's uh, In the Beauty of the Lilies. You know, when I first read that, it was probably 15, 20 years ago, and I had to put the book down. I couldn't, I couldn't actually, he was such a powerful description of losing one's faith. Uh, that I had to put the book down and I didn't come back to it for several years. <laughs> uh, so I finally came back and, and endured reading uh, through that, that what, what became for me sort of my, in my own personal canon, a very, a very powerful book. But what he captures there, I think, is, is he captures in language, I think, the experience that a lot of modern people have, especially people interested in apologetics, who you know, you read a bunch of books, you you listen to a lot of YouTube debates. I mean, Clarence Wilmot's living in 1910 in the story, so he's not wow. watching YouTube, but right. uh, his uh, his version. Um, but, you, you know, you kind of go through the intellectual pursuits. And I think what I'm trying to describe in part in that quote is this sensation that 
sometimes there's this this feeling, and I think it causes a bit of cognitive dissonance that we sort of hold on to our faith by an act of will. Uh, and so I think when people talk about their faith leaving them, in a sense, when you I recall another guy, uh, Greg Kreeble, I think was his name, who 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 uh, described his loss of faith as just running out of steam. It just mm. it just couldn't it couldn't keep pushing him anymore. And I think that is uh, uh, situated in a, in a faith experience to use that kind of language. <laughs> That's situated in an experience. Uh, in an experience that I think uh, that has faith being held on to by a perpetual act of will Mm. that if you let go of, if you let go of the attempt to tell yourself over and over and over and over again, why do I think, why do I think, why do I think, uh, you feel like you'd lose it. You, You don't feel held by the faith. You feel like you're holding on to it. Right. Uh, and, and each of the arguments that causes a little bit of doubt is like your fingers, you know, kind of losing grip from the pole. And at some point you just don't, you know, you, you, you've heard so many objections or had so many doubts that you feel like it just it just leaves you. Uh, and, and what you can do in a moment like that is, is kind of mimicked in that other film, The Grey, that you kind of, you know, you can cry up to the sky and say, God, it's I'm struggling. I'm doubting. Uh, here's these arguments I don't know what to do with. It doesn't feel uh, obvious to me. The things that I'm supposed to think are the most basic things about reality do not seem obvious to me. Um, and I think from that vantage point, when you pray and you, and you, and you feel the silence of God, whether the silence of God in terms of you becoming persuaded or clarity coming, uh, it, 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 um, uh, it's easy in that mood and, and I might call atheism a kind of existential mood. It's easy in that mood to feel as though you are living in a universe that is just impersonal. It's just crassly impersonal. There is no nothing to respond to you. Um, you are holding on to your faith by the act of will. And the reason you're losing it is because you can't do that anymore if you're an honest person. Uh, and the reason the sky isn't answering is because God's not there. Uh, in those two experiences uh, uh, match that reading of the world with a with a kind of a haunting precision, I think. Uh, and I and, and I think it, you know, partially what I think is going on in the book is to say what what have we done? Maybe how are we imagining uh, what it means to be persuaded of God's existence, such that we get ourselves in that sort of place in the first place? How did how did how did that that kind of doubt about God's existence functioning on that register or even apologetics coming in and functioning on the kind of cathartic relieving register that they do. How did we get into that situation? And what does that have to do with kind of the, the, yeah, the, 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 the very question itself, what it means to be persuaded of God's existence and how we can become, I think, more deeply persuaded of God's existence. So that's a lot of words, but. Uh, <laughs> well, no, I mean, that, that was what was so fascinating about this book there's often you know like a a a classic illustration used by preachers from c.s lewis about how you're grabbing onto the branch and it's the branch that holds you that's like what faith is and i've always thought but you got to have strong fingers don't you (laughs) like yes it's you holding onto the branch that's holding you too and what happens when your hand goes weak when it goes numb and i think that's a very Mm. stirring kind of question and uh, you, you have this phrase that I really love, felt fragility, that we have a felt kind of fragility. Mm. First of all, wh- where does that term kind of come from? 
Yeah. How, you, how are you using it? When we talk about felt fragility, a lot of that is just, um, I, I could say it in both a negative and a positive way. I, th- I think some negative influences, uh, I'm saying uh, is negative the right term, some uh, 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 things that have been removed that have been conducive to the situation are modes of life where stability and identity was normal. I mean, I think for most of history, most people have experienced a mode of being alive where who they were and what their place was in the world was mostly relatively scripted uh, and your self-making is kind of on the margins, uh, Mm. you might say. And I think what you see for just a host of reasons, we could talk about mobility and technology and and especially in recent social media and that sort of thing. I think we're increasingly in a moment where an enormous amount of life and of one's social involvement is a matter of self-making, uh, a, a radical phenomenological individualization in a sense uh, that is uh, inevitably going to, I think, uh, create, especially to intellectually honest and open souls, some degree of felt fragility because you feel yourself staring in a sense at all the options out there. You know, Taylor talks about this with secularity, right? Right. That being being in a secular moment is is being in a moment where you your beliefs are one option among many. But you might zoom out in a sense and say what Taylor says there is actually true of an enormous amount of phenomenon. Um, uh, that's you expect people experience confusion in their gender these days because they experience their gender if you're less than 20 years old. Uh, At least rhetorically, the way it's spoken about to you is that it's one option among many. Mm -hmm. And so everything, you you, you take that political identity, familial identity, local identity, and and we're we're in this sea of mirrors, (laughs) uh, in a sense. And I think we all feel that. And even the even I think kind of reclaiming projects, you know, let's go back to our old identity or something like that, uh, are themselves uh, irreducibly in our moment self-making projects. You know, so I want to always say something like, you know, is modern uh, conservative complementarian gender discourse, for instance, is that really a retrieval of the past option, or is that a actually a very modern form, not not uh, discounting it fully, but a modern form of self-making. Uh, you know, in this perceived sea of options. So that's kind of, that's partly sort of things that are gone that I think gave a certain kind of stability. But then when you're remaking yourself, you know, when you're trying to figure out what do I believe, what do I think, what's real, what's not real, we don't exist in a society where there are stable uh, answers to those questions at a societal level and mostly even at a communal level and barely even at a local church or single household level. People disagree about everything all the time. Uh, and so I think the uh, that fragility in, in some sense is just uh, names our typical response, the typical response of finite and fallen creatures uh, uh, to a circumstance that just is objectively <laughs> uh, somewhat fragile in some ways and requires an enormous amount of wisdom to navigate. And I do think, you know, just to throw it out there, one, one of the things I also try to do in the book is, you know, the goal is not to sometimes, it, it, you know, it, when we're just, you know, sort of doing evangelical vibes, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, we can talk about how life is hashtag messy and, you know, doubt yeah, yeah. is a thing and that's just yeah. human. You know, I do want to say, obviously, we all, there is a piece of us that wants to get beyond this. We want to feel more stable. Right, <laughs> we want right. to feel more deeply persuaded. And I don't want to say, I want to say that's good and that's healthy, but also that 
that that can't just be seized just because you want uh, uh, <laughs> to uh, use a terrible metaphor, just because you want the girl doesn't mean you're going to get her. Right, right. <laughs> uh, you, you can't you can't steal certainty. And I, and in fact, I think one of my friends has this great quote that I love where he, my friends have said to me, uh, in, in one way, the measure of a cult is the the seizure the seizure of certainty without the pilgrimage, uh, and I think what I what you see in a lot of that attempt to like let's not be the in the messy space let's get back to kind of the these ways is there's a seizure not of internal not of truth internalized but of a grammar that I insist upon because it's my you know because it's my you know, most immediate patronage, basically. And this is a really great point. Like people suffer, have suffered for all of human history. They may have cried out to God, but they never doubted his existence. It was just, it was not plausible that there was a godless world. Right. Whereas today, suddenly that is plausible. Now, one of the points you make is the importance of technology. Yeah. And why that has made atheism more plausible. Yeah, I think the thing to say there is, you know, the argument can get dense, but I think I can make it very simple. What what I think we can talk about in in, in modern technology and industrial culture is a mode of being shoved into the world, a mode of relating to the world where the agency of the world, the manner in which the world is an actor upon you, is sort of grayed out for you. And that's not entirely bad. But but by the time you get to, to most of our lives, like just look at most of our lives, most of us were grew up in suburban contexts where we walk outside, we get in a car, it transports us at high speeds on this thing called a road with yeah. lights that are lighting the path. Food is at a thing called a grocery store. And honestly, grocery stores by historical standards are insane. Right. <laughs> most of life was so revolved around getting food. It's it's all of these pieces of the way the world they're, they're, they don't, they're still there. They're just kind of shoved out of sight in the same way that old folks are put in an old folks home and sickness is shoved over here. But it's all sort of manicured out of sight. And what I, what I argue is that it you might say that what what is what does God look like? What does the cosmos maybe that's a better way to put it look like in the mirror of that experience of the world? Uh, if if the world itself is kind of this passive, agentless stuff, and agency is really just the thing I bring in my manipulation upon the stuff, uh, then it feels like I am the lone agent in this quiet cosmos that isn't really alive. And 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 I think the conversion of imagination that's almost necessary to to recollect how God was felt to be obvious in the past is, is in short, the agency of the world was manifest to them and read out of the mirror of an agentically read cosmos, a moving, living thing, a, a living be, being itself is alive. So when, uh, you know, when Liam Neeson is shouting to the sky, part of the answer to the question, where are you, God, is uh, literally everywhere uh, uh, he, he's literally everywhere, down to the to to, to the precise textures of your chemistry and experience, because he suspends you above nothing. And for right. the mind to, that's not just a claim. I mean, we all say that. That's that that can be an apologetics uh, response to the Liam Neeson claim. Uh, but it's different for your mind to truly come to see that with clarity. In other words. When you're, and this is why apologetics is necessary for modern people. I actually go on. I also don't want to be the oh, apologetics just right, for the right. head stuff. Apolo because we're confused, 
the right direction of the mind is very helpful in orienting us. And I think that can help us go back to our experiences and say, okay, we're the strange ones here. The way that we've sort of organized civilization and, and the impact of that organization on our basic human sort of gut impressions about the cosmos are deep and profound. And that doesn't mean we need to freak out about it, but it, we need to exegete it and stare at it. And, and then the other side of that, I'd add, that's the technology side. The labor side that's not in this book, but is in the forthcoming book is, uh, I think the, the especially decisive blow to uh, the plausibility of God read off the mirror of the cosmos comes when our own agency is also obscured. So mm. in that book, I, I'm talking about the obscuring of the world's own agency. But if we look at kind of the, the proliferation of uh, the, the life of a laborer, I'm a working. I'm from a working class background, so I guess I always. Uh, I'm always fascinated by these things. But if I look at the the, the manner in which we have organized, uh, the manner in which in an ordinary life in our society, human agency plugs into the common apparatus, and it's through that kind of social connection, through plugging into the common good, that I see my own action and am seen by others in my own action. And what I try to then go and talk about in the in the in, in the other book is is how uh, our ability to see what we're even doing in our labor is it has increasingly evaporated as well. So that even in our agency, even in those moments where there is an agentic uh, a d d d aspect of the cosmos ourselves we experience that agency in a very passive way very often. So, you you know, you, you, you can hear people talk about kind of going to work uh, in a way that they're sort of carried along in their rote motions, right? Uh, there's a pile of things waiting for me to arrive. And I don't really see uh, what what is lost, especially in, I think, big bureaucratic labor. And I'm not, you know, against all forms of that, but but in big, as lost as the, the kind of, Link in the chain. I, I don't fully see. I'll, I'll give an example. I was a secretary for four years uh, uh, at a at a big university, and and most of my job was doing paperwork. But I didn't really know where the paperwork came from, and I didn't really know where it went after I left. It, I, I just I, and I didn't know why most of it was even necessary. I just belonged. I was active. I was doing something, but I was sort of a passenger in my own agency because I didn't see. I didn't actually see what I did. Because <laughs> uh, I didn't see its connection to the whole of kind of human action and meaning, uh, and I think those kinds of things also slowly woo the imagination into a kind of cosmic mood, if you will, where what's really going on out there is actually a world agency, action, livingness always feels like an epiphenomenal sideshow to what is really hmm. just an impersonal big process. Yeah, and I think. How, if if that's the world, uh, uh, in the world we know God, classically speaking, through the world of creatures, what kind of God can be read out of that mirror? And the answer is none, <laughs> really. Yeah. Well, that that to me strikes at the heart of a lot of what you see. I think even in, you know, I know deconstruction is sort of popular and and all these things, but taking a step back and really getting a lay of the land. I mean, it it, it seems like sort of how the book builds is you're kind of wondering why does atheism feel so true, even though we know all the arguments, even though we know it's, it's, you know, yeah. 
we, we know all the, the, the mental things, but there's a disconnect somewhere where it can feel like God is not here. And that feeling of fragility, it's kind of spurred on by the fact that social structures have broken down. We've become very individualistic. Our yeah. labor is not connected to production. You know, I think about yeah. in Genesis where this God creates this world that's self-generating too. And, yeah. you can, and even with agriculture, there's, there's time, there's investment, and you see something grow over time, and you feel your fingers go into the earth, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, literally go into the earth. Literally, yep. That's Whereas right. now, you don't really feel as if you're part of this creative order that is structured and is life-giving, life-creating that you see in Genesis. And all of that is tied into your observations about technology. I mean, when I was reading the book, I'm like, man, it's kind of like whatever the 18th century or whatever the time period was, it's like we took the whole world and just put it under a microscope and said, yeah. everything outside this microscope is not relevant or speculation at best. If I yeah. can't tangibly see it underneath this thing, yeah, uh, it's, it's irrelevant to me. And then you're like, well, if that's the mood, like you're saying, if that's the vibe of the world, of course, it's almost like God has no opportunity. You can't see God, even if you were looking for him in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, that shift in just kind of background noise really is to me what alters the plausibility structure. And if we don't recognize that when we're doing apologetics, we're going to leave a, por a portion of ourselves alone or just ignore a portion of ourselves that needs to be very directly confronted and addressed to come to, I think, a more whole person persuasion. And so there is, and, and really, this is another way in which Taylor influences me, I suppose, is the way I think that works out historically is that there, there's a reciprocal relationship between kind of the material conditions and the ideas. Uh, Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, and Darwin don't lead to atheism in the abstract. There's plenty of Christians who read all four of them and think they're interesting on various registers. But when you have this material condition, this lived experience, this mood, if you will, all of a sudden, the ideas of those people become the ideas of the time. Who who philosophically writes about a, 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 a voiceless world better than Nietzsche? <laughs> you know, he's going to become a very a powerful philosopher uh, uh, for for positive philosophy. Even I think in a context where that's the mood you're kind of entering the game with. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a good point. It's not as though you know somebody reads you know, David Hume or whatever, or, or uh, like you're saying, Nietzsche or whatever. And, and suddenly it's just this, this like your mind gets warped as you read it or that, the, that the, I, the way ideas affect that background noise, sort of like, if, you know, fish don't know that they're in water. It's just right. what envelops them. And, and, and exactly. Christians and non-Christians, we're all swimming in this water that's so a part of our ingrained reality, we don't notice it. And yeah. that thing doesn't happen top to down from reading a book to idea in my head to live it out but it permeates through sort of our lived experience. And we don't even consciously realize that we are living in sort of a, a way of viewing the world that affects how we interpret nature, how we interpret, you know, yes. our relationships. I, I was thinking about when you mentioned yeah. uh, how most of us grow up in the suburbs going into a car. I remember uh, Louis CK, not promoting him. I'm just saying I, <laughs> May have listened to him say something. I once. might appreciate a little Louis C.K. Right. on occasion. <laughs> he, he was on Conan O'Brien and he, he mentioned how he was like, you know, people are so ungrateful today. It's like I can buy a ticket and sit in a chair in a tube that's rocketing through the sky 
and yes. appear at the other side of the world, you know? And I'm like, I have sent that bit to a lot of my oh, friends. Oh, it's a great bit. Or, or <laughs> even, you know, our church was you know, uh, going through Deuteronomy and there's this, you know, promises of I'll prosper your land and, and the, and the fruit of your labor and food will be plentiful. And I'm like, man, if you met, can you imagine if you talk to Moses today and you're like, there are storehouses of preserved food that are stocked yeah. up to the brim every single day that you can walk yeah. into without doing any work and pull into your house and you could feed a whole society. And he'd be like, what in the world is this? So we, we've kind of lost yeah. that and kind of wonder. I'm glad you said that because that's, I, I haven't, I have probably have not said that in, in I've said it in just a paragraph here and there, yeah. but I don't think it's emphasized enough in, in some of the things I've written, uh, which is, there's also the kind of um, when your basic needs are met, it is easy to become forgetful of God. Right. And actually, most of the sociological analyses of um, what what are predictors of unbelief, the, the famous studies are done by a guy named Zuckerman. Uh, and he would actually he he shows, for instance, I think I think the study is mentioned in that book as well. Uh, he actually shows that material prosperity, it's not the only precondition, but it's one of the major preconditions for a civilization to tend toward these, these mental motions. And I think part of that is really in the Proverbs, right? I think I quoted in the book, but Solomon, in this famous yeah. proverb, Lord, you know, make me not a beggar that I'd be tempted to steal, but make me not, and it's funny, this probably Solomon writing, make me not too wealthy. I know, right. <laughs> that I have no need for you and forget you and what happened to Solomon. And now, of course, He's not speaking about atheism directly there, but atheism is a is a is a is a uh, an inflection point is a way in which that very same uh, uh, spiritual trajectory can be manifested in our moment with its own distinctive temptations. But what you said as well, I think, is is just right. These sometimes when Christians talk about themselves in the world or the church versus the world, and we need to be the church, there can be a forgetting of the point, like, hey. You are also just part of the same group. You live here. Yeah. The same language. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you watch the same. And this is actually very uh, powerful and interesting to me. I don't think uh, enough has been written that's good on this. You also consume a lot of the same media. Uh, you like the same Batman movies and you like them weirdly often for the same reasons yeah. at, a, at a kind of visceral level. So there's a lot of, and one of the manifestations of this to me that's very ironic is. You take something like identity politics, you see endless fragmentation of gender, endless fragmentation of political identity and such. But look at the conservative, um, I'm in the in the reformed community. Uh, if you look in the kind of broad, young, less restless reformed community, how much of that functions along this very same vector as identity politics? That is yeah. to say, how many little groups are there? How many in, in the in the Presbyterian vein system chart, uh, uh, how many groups are like, right. well, you know, are coming up with a, a new LGBTQIA version? <laughs> right, uh, right. If, a theological, if the if that acrostic could be a theological one, and then uh, going and boasting, not boasting is the wrong term, articulating uh, expressive individualism, they call it, right expressing that identity very loud for social affirmation and for one's own sense of personal cohesion. People's theological projects are very become very much a, a kind of way in which they conceive them, their whole selves. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, when I look at this, it's like, this is all functions exactly, I mean, exactly like identity politics 
it's just a different group with different toys. Uh, but but very often you can kind of point at the other and not see that you're animated. You know, at, at some point, it, you know, if, if if you stare at the the rats going through the maze and chasing the cheese, uh, right? Uh, it's it, they might go a different way through the labyrinth, but they're kind of all doing the same thing and behaving the same way. It's yeah. very fascinating. Well, yeah. there's there's a uh, I remember Carl Truman had a pretty devastating critique when, uh, you know, Josh Harris had kind of did his whole, you know, I'm right. not a Christian anymore, you know, yeah. and he noted that Josh declared his, you know, deconversion with this Instagram picture of him. He's like overlooking this landscape, yes. you know, and Truman yes. was like, you know, Oddly enough, he's still a product like this is still something that is so modern and American where it's not just that you have this journey. It's yeah. that this journey is its is its own. Uh, you, you're, it's it's a it's the public nature of life where it's almost yeah. like you, you're, you're trying to market your journey as a certain yes. type of thing. And yeah. I think about how something you do talk about in your book is. You, you use it. I think you use the word journey, but you use it in a very non-loaded modern jargon way. I think you use it in kind of a traditional, like a pilgrim's progress kind of way. Yeah. You know, yeah. today journey is just sort of, it's a very superficial kind of like putting your journal entries online, you know, and right. just trying to gain a kind of affirmation from people. Right. Whereas you even think about the, like, I think about like Spurgeon dealing with depression. You know, I think about yes. what it took for Luther to have this radical shift in his mind and leave everything behind. Or think about, you know, St. Augustine and the ways that he wrestles with his own demons. It's very private. It's very it's a very long struggle, but it's also a Godward struggle. Like he's not just kind of seeing where his feelings take him. They know that they want to end up in union right. with God, but it's also brutal. It's it's filled yes. with these ups and downs. It's filled with these deep, dark moments. And uh, I think that something of recapturing that sense of like, there's a little bit of grit to the Christian life. Yes. You know? And yes. That we shouldn't be immediately impressed by people's sort of, you know, uh, publicized, you know, expressions of doubt and go, yeah. You know what? what if what if faith is actually a, a little more blue collar than we think? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, especially because and actually part of the reason to put the word endurance, you know, in the title, enduring divine absence, is is precisely to get at that point that I, I think we're in a moment that does take some fortitude. Uh, uh, it, it takes it takes courage uh, to be a Christian and to face these fears and doubts very like stare the demons right in the face and say, mm. what are you? Why are you here? Uh, how do I get you to go away? <laughs> right, uh, right. Uh, really right up in the face. And I, and, and I think um, that helps us develop a, a true resilience, a true endurance and a true courage, as opposed to what I think is often a, a kind of uh, 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 parody I think of those virtues because very often the the more ideological seizure of certainty is also portrayed in the term of endurance and courage, uh, but it's often portrayed that way in sort of like uh, you know people don't like Christians anymore these days, so you just hold on to the old truths and right. be courageous. Right. When it's like yeah, but that's that's actually the that's actually the easy option for you. Right. Right. <laughs> in right. a lot of cases. Um, um, the. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to overstate anything there, but I think that's absolutely right. There is an element of the Christian life, and I'd want to add to that 
especially now, you know, I do think it's correct to say there are unique, every age has its unique challenges. So maybe I also shouldn't overstate that. But we have very unique challenges in our moment. And that does take an enormous amount of wisdom and courage to work through. Yeah. You actually say, though, that this modern time, this technological age, not technology itself, again, as a bad thing, but the technological age and the way things are shaping, you actually don't go down the doomsday route. You actually say, you know, there's actually a unique opportunity. (laughs) This might actually be good news. Okay, why is this good news? Yeah, I I think... So it's interesting. I, I suppose I'm a bit inspired by both Bob Inc. and C.S. Lewis here, who I think uh, I think if you read, um, are you aware of Bob Inc.? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, okay. I had uh, him next to my T.D. Jakes books. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the apocalyptic fire, one That's shall right. be burned and one shall hang. <laughs> That's right. Uh, That's right. Uh, uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, part of this is, Look, you know, I hear folks like Jordan Peterson say this a lot of times. You got to be grateful for the modern age as well. <laughs> I like Advil. It's a good thing that like food is plentiful in a lot of ways. It's a good thing that we don't, you know, most of our half of our children don't die in childbirth. There's a lot of good things about the modern era. And I would also say um despite all of the costs that the the kind of philosophical move to the self have caused civilization. Uh, just like a, a, a Trinitarian theology, there's one good version of the Trinity and 15 heretical ones. Uh, <laughs> and I think individual, the same could be said of individualism. There is a truth in, in the idea that, that Christian, it is Christianity itself, in fact, uh, that, that contains within itself a sort of moral trajectory that does give language and human focus within within the civilizational hive mind, as it were, uh, on the individual. And I think what we see in modernity is partially an outgrowth of some some false starts in that, but also some good things. Like, you don't get Dostoevsky without being in the 19th century. Dostoevsky Mm. is not a thing that's written in the Middle Ages. It's written in the 19th century. Mm. You don't get modern film and the novel and modern poetry until now. And those are good things because the the fine, just as the the, the scientific scalpel can go into the fine-grained area of the physical universe, the fine-grained observation of man in all of the textures that he lives in, of which this book in one sense is an outflow you might say, uh, is a kind of a somewhat modern game in some ways. Uh, again, I think that most of most of what's going on, just as most, again, most versions of the Trinity are heretical, <laughs> a lot of what goes on in the name of quote, quote, individualism is, is not something we should celebrate. And there are many, many challenges uh, that, that, that need to be, um, that, that need to be confronted and addressed. Maybe uh, uh, a civilization basic DNA change in some ways. But largely what I'm trying to do there is just say, look, we should be able to say, um, what are we grateful for nevertheless? What actually is, what actually might be a vantage point that is, what might be the goods that, despite all the challenges, what might be the goods of passing through this moment? And what you see in Bob Inc. and Lynn Lewis is something like this. They say it in different places. Um, Lewis, Lewis, um, in miracles, it's chapter six or seven. I can't quite remember, but he basically says it sure looks like he basically makes the again. I didn't know this this paragraph when I wrote this book, but he makes the argument of my book in a single paragraph. Uh, 
yada, 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 technology, this, that, and the other, uh, men, you know, scientific mind, etc., uh, gets rid of God. At the same time, theological discourse is going away. Here we are, and now we're in a condition, Lewis says, to get to your blue-collar point. Now we're in a moment where ordinary men have to find wisdom for themselves or go without it. And Lewis says that's unique. In most history, ordinary men did not have to find their own wisdom. They mostly received wisdom from on high in a very stable social structure. But now the ordinary blue-collar guy has to figure out things for himself or not know things. And what he says is, on the one hand, that's a very, very bad idea. That's probably going to lead to civilizational collapse. On the other hand, maybe the intent of divine providence, and now I'm going to get a little post-millennial here. <laughs> I love it. Maybe maybe the intent of divine providence is actually that the average man should occupy the places that were once reserved only for the sages. Maybe what we should be seeing, and I actually think this is the historic genius of the evangelical movement uh, as, a, as a movement out of the Protestant movement, is the raising up of the plebeian. It's the raising up of the laity into the knowledge that has been possessed by the clergy, rightly so, and we still want a clergy, we still want doctors, I still want Ryan Hurd, my good friend, to know a whole lot more about the Trinity than I do. <laughs> uh, and then we share and participate in one another's knowledge. But the conditions on the ground are such that the average wisdom that is needed to be internalized by your average Christian might be more. Uh, you might be able to, it might be helpful for you to be able to have things clear in your head more than you might have had had in the past. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, this is part of what Davin at Hall's about, right, is is creating opportunities for this. And, you know, all these ev evangelical outlets or, or, or some attempt to, to accomplish something like this. But the, the, the payoff of that, you know, the risk, in some ways, the rewards are proportionate to the risks. We just are in a situation uh, where we could easily destroy ourselves, where where the the, the our, our inability to find social cohesion could be an opportunity for the kind of biting and devouring that we see all around us these days that will consume our civilization from the inside. On the other hand, uh, here's how I think about it. Maybe uh, uh, we we shouldn't project. The, the future might be that America dissipates tomorrow and the whole thing unravels. And if that's God's plan and His providence, that's fine. Uh, but what I want to imagine as a Christian right now is let me imagine a future 500 years from now. Could, could I imagine 500 years from now, our era being written about as an era of deep instability, where nevertheless, instead of that, as it, as it has an innate tendency to do led to destruction, it became an opportunity for ordinary persons to mature, uh, to mature in character, uh, to mature in knowledge, uh, in a massively distributed way that actually greatly enriched civilization and ameliorated a lot of the tendency to decadence. Uh, and so you might say that uh, elsewhere, I can't remember if I use this image in that book, but sometimes I use the image of a, of a juvenile being kicked out of a home. Um, when a, you can imagine a young man being kicked out of his home at say 20 years old and your options when you're kicked out of the home are you just have to make a life for yourself and you can, you know, some people say, I'm just going to do whatever my parents did. Uh, some people say, I'm going to do everything that my parents didn't do. <laughs> you know, that sort right. of thing. Another option is just to say, I'm going to be a free and full agent, receiving what came before me, inflecting it as I know how in wisdom, uh, and to actually unite 
in a fully possessed version of one's own self and project uh, to unite the mind and the will. I think this is really the, the kind of key motif is that what you see, I think, in in a, a moment like ours is that if we do not have a sort of mass union, in a sense, of our character dispositions, our will, and the content of our minds, and we it, and we instead live in sort of mass fracture betwixt those things, we'll destroy ourselves. But there's the possibility that this could be written about in 500 years as a moment of profound maturation for the human race. And so that one that what I then go back and Bob Inc. will speak about this at a global level about ecumenicity. <laughs> he actually says the, the the split of the churches is a divine judgment because we haven't figured out how to get our act together. He says this in his <laughs> recently released guidebook to the instruction. No, uh, what is Christianity? I think he says it in. Um, uh, uh, I think we need to take, you know, we need to take actual providence seriously. In divine providence, we're not a united church right now. We're not a united civilization right now. Uh, and we can just insist, well, let's go back to when it was and get rid of the people who aren't interested. Or maybe we should suspect, maybe there's a project to be had here, which doesn't mean abandoning any of the good things that we've received and being grateful for our past, but it does mean we have to grow up and be men for ourselves. And, uh, move into a future. And so in a, in a way, what I want to say is why is it not bad? Because there's still a possible future that's good. Uh, and our job is to, our job is just to do our part to realize that possible future. Uh, and if it doesn't get realized, then that's, that's up to God. You know, in a sense, we're not, we do our part moving toward that in a sense. Uh, but, you know, the actual fallout of that is in God's hands and up to his wisdom. Oh, you got my post-millennial, you got my, <laughs> I got the post-millennial tingles now. You oh, know? good. But, yeah, uh, post-mill, I think they say online yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it is fascinating because you get this sense of, you know, like you said, it could go either way, but there could be fertile soil. I just think about how yes. the young restless reform movement catapulted because of the internet. You yep. had this incredible cross-pollinization where you had right. Baptists becoming Calvinists and, you know, Presbyterians becoming liturgical and, and charismatics now being reformed and, and all this whole cross-pollination that was unthinkable a generation before. People were so yep. siloed. And I also think about, you know, you mentioned Jordan Peterson, you know, and uh, yeah, one of the uh, appeals of him is, man, he is packing out auditoriums of young guys who don't read philosophy, yep. who don't really care much about the Bible. And he's doing a you know, three hour lectures on Genesis. Now, obviously not from a, a Christian yeah, perspective, but, but it's a judgment on us because you can do that. And we yeah, don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, uh, as, yeah. as Peter would say, it's not good. It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> it's not yeah, good. Right. Yeah. It's that's not right. good. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that sucker's bad anyway, but yes. it's, but, um, and, and I think, so there's fertile ground, right. With the internet. And, and I also think in some senses we are ready for it. Uh, mm. You you mentioned how you were talking about uh, sort of the the common man, the blue collar man, now basically able to rise up a little bit, not not in like a revolutionary way, but but, yeah. but that, that there's a sense in which um, this information has been now readily available to a lot of people that that opens up a lot of possibilities for like yeah. sort of a, a middle class of people in a sense. Yeah, I, I, I think about how like um, so I, I was in a. I, I would make a great article, the rise of the intellectual, the, the, the theological middle class. There you go. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. But uh, I, uh, I worked in the, I was 
in a film company for a long time. I went to film school. I, you know, that was kind of oh, cool. like my training. Yeah. And one of the things that it's fascinating is when you watch old movies to new movies, you know, you start to see that the, the editing cuts are quicker. So, you know, there's a movie Requiem for a Dream it came out in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. It's like a classic drug movie, all that stuff. Yeah. I, I, don't suggest, I don't suggest people watch it again, like Louis C.K. I'm just saying. <laughs> but uh, it sort of, it, it, it was one of the first movies to be really edited on, you know, computers. And they were able to make these precise, rapid, half a second cuts. And movies started to take that. And, and now you have movies that have rapid cuts and smash cuts and all this stuff. And what happened was audiences are now trained to imbibe more information quickly. They're able to follow yeah. a story, but your grandpa is not going to be able to follow, you know, the, a Marvel movie, but we can yeah. follow it because we've been trained to process all that information quickly. And I wonder if like now the average person is actually has a larger capacity to take in some of these deeper concepts that may have been reserved for an educated elite. Yeah. I think, I think what you see in our moment is, um, there is a way in which, you know, people can talk about, you know, look, look at these old intellectuals at the middle to the end of the 19th century. You know, we don't produce them like this anymore. We've gotten right. dumber. In other words, there's an right. argument, you know, we've gotten dumber. Uh, the truth is those intellectuals still exist. What really has happened, I think, in the modern world is something very much like what you just said, is there's actually just such a spectrum now that it's actually hard in the um, social media can obscure this because very often people are talking to each other who are at totally different levels right so like when, right when uh you know when nt when, when when you know a rachel held evans or something is directly engaging in nt right it sort of confuses right what, what camps are we <laughs> yeah sort yeah. of of competency are we in here right now right right, right. Um, nevertheless there is i think quite a spectrum and i think what you you begin to see in our pedagogy is an is an enormous uh almost a genre of lay theology mediating yeah. theology that is for, so bovink writes four volume reform dogmatics big well then he writes his 500 page uh you know our reasonable faith which is everything here's for the scholars and the seminary students yeah. and the educated you know the people who really want to get into it here's the basics for uh, the elder yeah well just just this week actually guidebook to the instruction of the christian religion came out which bovink i think published in 1911 or 12 uh, uh, and it's only 150 pages wow. and it's all of the dogmatics distilled down to 150 pages. And that's for your high school student. That's for anybody yeah. uh, who wants to have kind of the, and I think you see this again in a, in a person like Lewis, Lewis is not, Lewis is not going over the minutia of Thomas Aquinas with you, but what he is doing is taking an enormous, an absolutely enormous consolidation of the tradition on, an, on, on a truly staggering amount of frontiers and then consolidating it into extremely accessible and lively images and prose yeah. that have an almost musical dancing quality. So that, and, and who, you know, then you start to think, who has been read more in the 20th century than C.S. Lewis by your average Christian just trying to understand yeah. what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, and I think there's we're seeing more and more role for that kind of mediation. And I think you, what you said is just right. It doesn't mean that everybody on the bottom is going to become Thomas Aquinas. What it does mean is that, uh, you know, I think of somebody in, in, at Davenant, we have this guy, Ryan Hurd, who talks a lot about the Trinity, and he is just a brilliant, brilliant reader of Thomas. 
but I have a hard time understanding some of this. And so a lot of it gets mediated to me. And I know some other people who can't quite get it and I can mediate what I'm able to get to them. And there's a sort of assembly line of knowledge passed around the church. And it's one of the things you write about with media though, and just the, the quickness with which we communicate is actually how fast that process can go. You know, it, it feels like it, it's got to take a million years for a guy doing something really brilliant over here to it getting to the masses. But, you know, look at Charles Taylor. You know, nobody has been a more significant public and an influential intellectual in the world of philosophy than Charles Taylor since 2007. Uh, and yet already, it's only been 15 years, already most of his insights have been shoved into very small bits that an accessible that a layman can pick up and work with. Right. Uh, and so there's a lot of exciting things like that. Uh, obviously, there's challenges to that. 90% of what's published is not terribly worth reading. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, so like there's, there's, a, I, that's, that's being a little cynical. I don't want to say that. 90% of what's published, I should say, is uh, probably redundant of something that is said better somewhere else. Yeah. That, that would be just as accessible to the person. Uh, but nevertheless, the fact of that, the existence of that whole world of mediation, I think is an enormously good thing. None of us would be the same without it. <laughs> we've, we're all, we've all depended on it ourselves. <laughs> well, I, I think, uh, some of the things that are, are sort of, uh, emerging as topics of interest are, you know, kind of like people are, are really interested now in church tradition and, and re reclaiming it. Mm. People are interested in how emotions affect our minds and how we think mm. people are interested, you know, in, in, like you were saying, the way we view the world and how technology influences that. And I think going on with, cause I think uh, the Taylor stuff really was, uh, I know a lot of people, it was through uh, James K. Smith that a lot of those ideas became popularized yeah. for evangelicals. You know, it sort of took this, yeah, because Taylor's Catholic, I believe. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, Taylor's, Taylor's right. Catholic. He was well talked about, but certainly, yeah, Smith's little Taylor book right. uh, really is what he, he catapulted him right. into a, another layer of influence. Certainly. And suddenly, you know, churches are all about habit and formation and rhythms and all these kind of things. Yeah. If you were to distill it down, how do the spiritual disciplines and maybe even you talk about remembrance and, and how the will is involved with that. Can you flesh out what you mean? Like, how would you counsel somebody who's really in, who's, who's like Liam Neeson screaming at the silent sky? Yeah. That's how a, would you counsel them in terms of practices and ways that they can kind of reconnect to God? Yeah, so to speak? and that's a, that's a really good question. In, in mentioning the will, what I, what I, meant, I think that's the last chapter, what I'm trying to do is, is sort of get at what I've said earlier. You know, it's like the union of mind and will. Yeah. You know, the mind can be persuaded where, you know, some other register of me doesn't have an itch scratched. And what we're doing in a sense, and this is, I think, just in some ways, just human maturation, we're trying to become more integrated selves. You know, we want our thoughts and our feelings and all those things to, to kind of come together uh, in as much as we're able to do that. Yeah, the role of the disciplines, um, I think, in that is, on the one hand, it would be, it would be I think, inhabiting the project of disciplines wrong to sort of uh, see them as sort of engineering you into another reality. Sometimes, right. uh, sometimes the disciplines can be treated as almost like an ex opera operata sort of, sort of thing, like a magic a, ritual yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Once right, you do right. the ritual, you know. Right. Uh, on the other hand, uh, another way of looking at disciplines is just to say it's it's about reattunement to reality. What are the disciplines doing? Um, uh, prayer, sitting before the scriptures. 
um, going to church and loving other persons. Actually, and this is really key, actually, being in intimate, meaningful, and vulnerable relationships with other humans. Humans are still the image of God, the chief actors through who his face is known to us, ultimately, of course, in Christ, but derivatively in others. Um, the, the discipline of having that kind of communal connection, even all of those things written as habits into us, I think are ways in which we habituate. And this is really what disciplines have always been. They're ways in which the human uh, habituates the non-cognitive in some way. It, it involves the cognitive, but there's ways in which you're you're situating all those other aspects of yourself as governed by your judgment. You know, this is what I think I ought to do. You, you, you write those dispositions around uh, precisely so that the whole self can kind of be led along. Uh, 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 the classic image sometimes is of a man riding an elephant. You can't yeah. just tell the elephant what to do. Obviously you can't shove it to go a different direction, but through a certain kind of guy, well-integrated leadership and orderedness in the soul, you might say, uh, you can guide the elephant and, and, and you can, you can, you can, I don't want to use the word manage, but I think you can come to a deeper integration of the self and the discipline certainly help to do with that. And again, one of those, I think for a lot of us, this isn't every person because we're not all kind of intellectual in inclination, but for intellectuals, that is going to tend to be, that is going to tend to involve uh, reminding ourselves of the arguments themselves. Uh, we live in a world uh, uh, where the where the things themselves are constantly re-obscured for us. Uh, so it's not just that it's obscure and now, oh, here's a book Joe wrote and it's fixed. Yeah. <laughs> you, you close the page and you go back out in the world and it's still sending you those messages. And so partly what remembering in church and the Bible and prayer, all of that's doing, including apologetics, is resituating various portions of the self before reality so that uh real kind of the 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 force of reality itself is operating on us and holding us within itself and and what you're doing kind of in the disciplines is positioning different parts of yourself in prayer i'm positioning i mean that's really the ultimate one i think you're positioning your whole self delivered up unto god in prayer uh but then you could talk about the bible you could talk about apologetics and the positioning of the mind and you could talk about acts of love and the positioning of uh character all that sort of thing but in a way it's um uh, you know, sometimes people talk about the disenchantment of the world i don't particularly care for the phrase but because the world is just as enchanted as it's ever been uh but i do think we can speak about the disenchantment of ourselves right. and maybe one way of looking at the disciplines is these are uh reenchantment practices because they're 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 practices that are meant to shove you back into the gravity of reality uh so that you can actually not to kind of woo yourself into thinking it because you can't otherwise but actually to have it made in you in a clear way. And in a way, this is what happens with lovers, right? Maybe that's the best analogy. How do you, how do you love your spouse? What is it that actually creates? What is it that actually, if, if you desire to love your spouse more, let me put it that way, how do you do that? One way you do that is actually to place yourself before them, not with an agenda, <laughs> I think we we often bring too much of an agenda to our prayer and or whatever and all the practices, but actually, if you place yourself before them and just let the reality of their act be upon you, 
and, and, and make an impression inside of you, the otherness of the stealths and the splendor of the stealth actually stand out. And in a sense, in the disciplines, that's what we're doing. We're placing a piece of ourselves before reality uh, so that it can re-gravitationally pull us back into itself such that when we go back to these other forces, we're able to say, we're able to see it clearer. Like, I see what that's doing to me. Uh, and, and it's not because I'm trying to be a Christian because I need to hold on to, you know, the, the big barb of the sky daddy or yeah, something yeah. like that. <laughs> it's because it's real. I see right. that the thing that is pulling my soul is real. And this thing is pulling me this way toward the unreal. Uh, and, and when I can see that and name it in a way, perhaps sometimes just being able to name what's happening to us is itself a sort of exorcism. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah. So. Yeah, no, that's that's a good way of putting it. I mean, I think, one, we want to avoid a mechanistic view of the spiritual disciplines. If you just read your Bible, pray, it'll, it does some, it's like, a, it's like a spell that conjures up something. Yeah. But these are channels of God's presence. It's, it's how he that, mediates yes. his presence to us. And I yes. think it's, it's often kind of a, a trite saying, it's like, are you just going to tell me to pray more? It's like, well, no, in one sense, if you mean like, here's a magical thing to do. But yes, in another sense, where it's like, yes. is our problem that we spend too much time praying? And oh, even no. when we pray, I, I, I think about that where, you know, when you actually stop and sit there, your mind rushes into a thousand different places. And yeah. it's, it's one of those things where if you're really focused on something, it's kind of like when you're driving and you're thinking about something, you, you like end up at the, you know, at the supermarket and you're like, how did I get here? Like what, like. Your, your focus is attuned to like what you set your mind on. And I think about if you sit there and you kind of push your mind to set it on God, you're actually seeing what's really there in the same way as if you were to drive and go, I'm not going to think about those other things. I'm going to just focus on the road. You're actually seeing everything now, whereas you could yes. not see it. You know, even the, the imagery could go through your eyes, but you're not focused on it. You're not in a place to actually see it. And so you just feel like you end up at a random place. In the same way, I, I think about, you know, the postures we have before God, the practices, they're a way of helping us, like you're saying, helping us to really see reality that God is, mm. you know, in whom we move and have our being. He is yeah. everywhere all at once, you know, or what, what does Augustine say? Like, he's higher than the heights, but closer to me than I am to myself. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's a powerful image. Yeah. Um, and this really is just the Christian tradition. We read it, but again, I think we read it with such atrophy in ourselves that it can feel like just a thing people are saying, like you just said, these thoughts that go through or whatever, or you you can see the road, but it's just kind of passing through you. Um, uh, when we really come to grips, you know, David Bentley Hart's The Experience of God is actually very good on this question. Yeah. When you really come to grips with the notion that all creature, all creatureliness all creatures and all aspects of all creatures in some, on some register, all being is some imitation of God's own being. <laughs> he is, he is shoving his presence out. He is shoving his presence out to you in the manifestness of things and in all of their textures and colors and realities, because all of creation again is in some way an imitation of God. It's actually uh uh, one thing I like to say is it's including your life, by the way, including your story, including the the providential character of your entire your entire narrative, and and in fact to I think to fully internalize that 
is almost too overwhelming uh, to really grasp how close Re, like in, in a way, what I think we're after sometimes, go back to Liam Neeson, sometimes what we're after in our prayer is an object. We want the distance of a creature in front of us uh, instead of the intimacy of the creator who is actually much closer than if he were standing right here in front of us in that embodied way, even though he does that as well <laughs> in Christ right. and adds to the modes in which he's present to us. That's an overwhelming truth, I think, that is actually more charismatic than all charismaticisms, because what it says is God is, you know, God told me, well, God is talking to you all the time right, in everything. Right, <laughs> right. God never stops talking, actually, uh, uh, on one register. Uh, obviously, I, I have my view about special revelation being yeah, yeah. but but the uh, 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 natural revelation and your life are divine speech. They are there, God breathing something out of nothing uh, uh, into being in a way. And I think when when turning that aside to the, to, to the dimension of piety, you talk about prayer, right? You know, people have a mechanistic view of prayer. Uh, the older I get, and I'm only 40, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but the older I get, the more we're just not thinking of prayer right when we think of it that way. Like when it's like, well, do you have to pray more? You know, that kind of feeling. Yeah. It's like, do you know really what's happening when you pray? Like, do you understand? Do you understand that uh, you can bring, you you must bring your whole life and all textures of it to the living God who is there to care for you? If you think pray, if you think <laughs> rhetorically to put it that way is to miss the richness of prayer. We don't we don't think of um uh you know by analogy we don't think of like sex that way you know or something like that like well you know like uh, do you have to do it for more than ten minutes you know whatever like it's <laughs> not you know, <laughs> like it misses the unbelievable richness and the wealth and the nutrition. The spiritual nutrition, and I'm not saying this is somebody that feasts on prayer with anything like sufficiency, but to the extent to the extent that I've tasted just the morsels at the divine table through prayer, uh, I can say that uh, more and more to me, prayer is just everything. And, and, and I can feel that the weight of the Christian tradition when you open Calvin's Institutes and you flip open to the practical section and it starts with prayer the chief exercise of the Christian religion. It's the deliverance of all of our lives, all of the pieces of our lives back unto God uh, to care for us. And I just don't know how to, I don't know how to see that as anything but the most relieving news. <laughs> uh, and I think the more that you find yourself splashing around in prayer and enjoying prayer, um, the realness of God is, is uh, yeah, I almost think maybe as we as as we deal with our own struggles and doubts or, pe or we minister to people who are dealing with them, it's like, man, I'm praying and I'm praying to an empty sky. It's like, man, talk to God about that. Like, like, think, sit, sit yes. a little, sit a half hour longer. And, and you think about like Psalm 88, Psalm 88, yep. the classic Psalm that is just sad. For, yeah. And have and you read Till We Have Faces? Uh, I have. I didn't understand it until I listened to you. And Dale interview a guy talk oh, about it. So this this is what it's exactly what you just said. Right, right. But uh, and uh, but but just the, the sense of like one, are you even in the posture to receive 
this mm. quote unquote revelation of God. You know, I, I mean that in a very sober sense, not like, yeah. you know, but are you even in the posture there? Because like you say, bringing your whole life, part of it's like, man, be, be honest, be, yeah. be like, yeah, why is the sky empty? And then go there because I often wonder if God's kind of like, now we're talking. And now we, yes. now you finally come to me in, in your finitude as a creature. This might be the first mark of humility that you've had in your prayer life to really come like that. Not, not in sort of a, uh, exhibitionist kind of like, I just start cussing at God and spewing yeah. out all my emotions. But I think in Job's yeah. way of really, Lord, if you really are the Lord and you know me deeper than I know myself, here's all of it. This is where I'm at. This is yeah. what I'm dealing with. And, and even, sitting even there. You, like you said, yeah, if you have sinful anger toward God, uh, you can bring that to, even if it's right. sinful. Right. It's, it's more sinful not to bring that sinful prayer to God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to hold it. That's right. And, As if he doesn't know either. And I, I, Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I love a... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, this is till we have faces. This is kind of, again, statute of limitations. We can ruin yeah. it a bit. Yeah, but yeah. this is sort of the climax is sort of the, the line, uh, I think, toward the end. I just finished it again yesterday is why should the gods listen to the babble that we think we mean until we find the words that have existed in our heart, you know, sort, sort of for so long? Why should they show us? Why should the gods show us their face until we have faces? Yeah. So much of our prayer and so much of our lives and so much of our kind of intellectual LARPing and trying to construct our identity together and all that sort of thing is, is an attempted construction of a face that's not honest. Uh, it doesn't actually, and, and when we stand before God naked, it, it actually happens at the end of that book, when you stand before the gods and you're fully naked, that's when I think the divine surgery really occurs. God yeah. is found in truth. And 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 you're going to, I think, be in a place where he ministers when you refuse to lie. This is actually, I think, a very deeply spiritually insightful thing about that Jordan Peterson says. Do not do not say something you know, know to be false. Right. Um, absolutely refuse to lie. And so here's here's an example that I, I often tell people. I don't think I put this in the book, but I've said it several times since then. How well, how certain are you actually of all these things that are part of your intellectual project? Like, really, there is there is an answer to that question. Like, if you went through all the things you claim and argue about on Twitter and Facebook about, go to each of them, stare at them and ask yourself honestly, do <laughs> I actually know this? Like, right, know right, it. Right. We know what it is like to know. You and I know we're talking to each other right now. Right. Uh, we don't know probably how many people are within a mile of us. Right. We know when we know and we know when we don't know. Right. And I think if you actually go through everything you think and you have that kind of brutal honesty uh, and you, you you know the limitations of just a lot of times, I think that the honest prayer is I just I don't see clearly. Like right. uh, 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 in a lot of things, I'm confused and I need your clarity to save me from my confusion. And that's another thing that's happened. I think the more I, I feel this way about prayer, the more the, the the Bible passage, he who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, is uh, very dear to me, not just as, a, as an initial uh, promise for the Christian life, but is actually the, the, the most root uh, catalyst to prayer in all of life. 
Because what do I need all the time? I need to call upon the Lord, the name of the Lord to redeem me from all sorts of things. I'm, I need redemption from my confusion. <laughs> I need redemption from the, the, the continue struggle with sin. I need, uh, I desire at least intervention in some circumstances in my life. And it's up to him whether he does that. Uh, and yet come before the Lord with full honesty, call upon his name because those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, and that to me is just, I don't know, that's ground zero of the Christian life and of Christianity to me at this point. Uh, I, I, any intellectual project has to be on top of that or, or, or is, is an explication of that primal reality in a sense, an exegesis of it. I mean, that is, I mean, th- th- there, there could be so much more to be said about that. I mean, it is, um, I mean, it, it requires enduring. I mean, like yeah. you were saying, the, the title of your book is not dealing with definitively in five days, divine absence. No, yes. Five steps to get God present in your life. That's yeah, right. That's, that's not, right. Yeah. But it yeah. is, even in the title, it's saying divine absence is a real feeling. And here's how you endure it because there's another side, but, but there's, there, there is something in that, in, in the wrestling with God. The valley that, of the shadow of death. That's right. Yeah. That actually is the answer that you're looking for, but you have to endure. And I think that's where faith is born, which is, you know, kind of a well, radical you see this, in, this is why, you know, I think it's weird in, in one sense, the chief argument to a lot of people against God is, of course, you know, we might say senseless suffering, you know, the death yeah. of a child or something yeah. like that. One of the things that persuades me about what you said, what you're saying there, uh, there's a non-cognitive dimension to one's one's relation to God, but it's but to talk about it is we can we can nevertheless point at it, I think, and say it's very real. And one of the things that deeply persuades me of that is when I see people who are really suffering a true, true loss, like I, I've known people who lost a, a very young child very suddenly. Yeah. Platitudes are not comforting in that circumstance, actually. Uh saying saying uh a religious proposition hanging in the air and dangling from a Bible verse sort of thrown at you is not comforting. Like, like if all the reason we believe these things and these verses are comforting is just because we can't handle the big, bad, dark universe. Um, most of the people I've met who have gone through that would do not want to find comfort that's not real. They don't want to just tell themselves, maybe I'll see my dead child again so that I feel better. It doesn't honor the profundity of that thing called death, to throw lies at it if these be lies. And yet I have seen many of those people come out the other side of that and say, I am actually really comforted in my soul because God is good. And that's mm. real. <laughs> like yeah. it's, 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 it's almost miraculous because I've seen people do that who, 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 who would be nauseated at doing that for the sake of mere catharsis or, or comfort. Uh, it's rather comforting to them precisely and, and, and only in fact in proportion to the degree to which they experience it as the realest thing, the most bankable thing in reality, more bankable than anything. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I don't think there's any answer to that. And so what I try to go on in the book and then say is, is maybe rejecting God in that moment is actually a failure to endure. You know, faith is often treated as kind of the weak way. It, you get the crutch so that you can go on because, you know, nobody wants to deal with the big bleak cosmos. Oddly, you know, there's plenty of people out there, myself included, who 
have a weird modern aesthetic attraction even perhaps to that cosmos. Uh, I'm not saying that's a good part of me. It might be an Im immature, you know, juvenile part of me, but that's not it. It has to be real to be comforting. And when you see these people actually, really in the middle of history in a real life comforted on that register, I don't know what to do with that. You know, I, I, I don't think that, interp that interpretation is too dismissive. I think they've endured and I think they've been had. And I think, I think they've shout, I've seen some of these people literally go and shout at God and then find a God who nevertheless permitted that in their life to be a trustworthy God and a good God. Uh, that's also happens until we have faces. Uh, mm. uh, uh, so, yeah. And I, you know, every, every time I hear these like suffering narratives, I'm like, oh man, does God have to just like destroy my life? So I'll know him. And, and I, and I find the, <laughs> you know, maybe it's like, it's like, you know, the, your, your church attendance goes down when you announce a Job series, you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't want to learn these lessons, but, but, you know, I think there is something to say about actually it. We all have had trials in our lives. And even if they're not as big as someone else's, they're big to us and they matter to God. And we look back and we realize, no, he has, shown himself and we have had to endure. Yes. And so, you know, we don't have to think that we have to just be brought through the ringer to find this knowledge of God, that he no. is gracious and willing to reveal himself. If maybe if you would take the time and just maybe it's not enduring the pain of a loss of a child or something extreme, but just enduring the odd monotony of prayer, the quietness, the awkwardness, yeah the being bored, that I could do better, just enduring that and pushing through and talking about where you're really at and just seeing what happens. And I, that's, that's something I'm encouraged by your book. I don't know that I do that. I, I know that I don't mm -hmm. do that, but I'm like, man, maybe we're the unwilling ones. Maybe we're the unwilling ones to see and God is not the unwilling one to show. You know, yeah. and, and I think that that's yeah. Uh, powerful thing. How can he talk when we talk so much? That's right. <laughs> we need to have our own faces. Yes, that's right. That's right. Joe, thank you so much. This was really great. Hey, my uh, pleasure, brother. This is a great book. Again, it's called Enduring Divine Absence. Make sure you buy it. And uh, it'll be a great read. I think it's a great read for not just if you're going through difficulty with doubt, but if you're especially going through it with somebody else, if somebody else is facing mm. difficulty. I think this will give you some helpful, a helpful path forward. I'm going to leave some links so we can support Joe's work. Uh, in the uh, show notes, he's got a great podcast called Pilgrim Faith. And the other one is called uh, A Plausible Faith. A Plausible Faith, you might say, is a, for lack of a better phrase, it's kind of Mr. Rogers for doubters. Okay, it's me gotcha. sitting on a couch and walking through doing what you just said, really. Okay. It's me sitting on a couch and walking walking through a crisis of faith. Okay, we're having a crisis of faith. Where are we going to start? Gotcha. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll put links to those in the show notes. But uh, Joe, thank you so much. Really you, appreciate uh, you doing this interview with me.